0: Good morning, great to be with you guys this morning, great to have something to celebrate today that is unrivaled in our lives. The resurrection is a unique event and I want to draw our attention to it this morning, but I'm grateful for family members, I know the holidays bring with it some family traveling to be with their family, and so I know many of you are here. I know we have some visitors or some folks that we haven't seen in a while who are here visiting your families, and you have taken a big slice of your day, and you've chosen to be with us to honor God today. So thank you. I hope we get a chance just to tell you hello after the service and welcome you to our family here. Uh, Undoubtedly, already, you have... Encountered somebody who's walked up to you and said, Happy Easter, undoubtedly, today, right? Happy Easter. And that word happy, you know, if you've been in the church here for the year 2014, you know I'm wearing that word happy out. We've been living in a bunch of messages talking about being happy and God's interest in our being happy. But I want to add a little bit of a qualifier to Happy Easter this morning. I just want to, I want us to get us to change our terminologies from, and I, and I kept trying to change it when I greeted people today. And I'm so happy Easter oriented. My own words had a hard time with this, but it's not just happy Easter. For a Christian, it's happy because of Easter. Happiness is an effect of something. Happiness comes from somewhere. Happiness is not an accident. Can I say it that way? happiness in your life is not an accident. It's the result of something. If you don't get that right, you become open to all kinds of interesting ideas about happiness. My second oldest daughter, Carly, is in her second year of college, and she has taken a number of interesting courses uh, in those two years that have allowed her to challenge worldview issues and talk about beliefs and what people believe and had to write all kinds of papers. So it's been kind of fun to interact with her as she's been trafficking through history classes and a Bible class and an ethics class. And the other day she was telling me about some, you know, I guess today, modern technology. You don't just interact with people while you're in class. Now people post stuff and, and you have to interact with their post. And so you're electronically commenting on the other students and what they've said <coughs> There was one student who had made some kind of a comment, if I'm remembering correctly. It, was, it had to do something with, with God and, and God's view on a particular behavior in life. This individual had chosen to pursue this behavior, and then it was trying to figure out, how did God view that? And, and this would be a morally qualifying thing that I hear all over the place. Basically, God would be okay with that behavior because... God wants us to be happy. Thank you. That's become the defining thing. Now listen, if you guys have been around for too long, you know that's not always the way people felt about God. But at some point in our lifetime, the defining thing for God's motivation in his world is that God would want us to be happy. So if we choose a course that we believe will bring us happiness, well, then God is for us in that because God wants us to be happy. And then you've got all those, you know, let's, let's face it, there's this killjoy bunch of people on the planet, those kind of fundamentalist Christians who serve some lemon-sucking God who, you know, he doesn't want to say anything that will make us happy. He's not into happiness, He's just this really serious, austere, doesn't doesn't know how to have fun, for goodness sake, kind of a God. So, you know, to that presentation, I've got to stand in a pulpit and tell you, you know what? God is interested in your happiness, more so than you can, can even begin to imagine, more so than you're interested in your happiness. God is interested in your happiness. And and Jesus said some things, right? I'll put these in your outline. He said some things about our condition of our soul being happy, if you will, right towards the end of his life. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I didn't just come for you to get by. I didn't just come for you to, to have this sad, barely enjoy your existence. I came that you might have life to the fullest. That's what that word means. God's interested in you having a fulfilling, rejoicing, full, happy life. And then Jesus goes on in these next couple of passages that are scattered in your outline there. John chapter 15 verse 11. Now let me just tell you, these these verses are all bunched up Right? I mean when you read the Gospels, biographical stories of Jesus' life, but John's an interesting book in the Gospels because when you get to John chapter thirteen, the plot line slows up severely. So you know you're thirteen chapters in to John, and the next several chapters are all one night. They're all one evening. They're the Passover meal where Jesus sits with his disciples and shares some final thoughts with them before this giant event of the cross and the resurrection. And this is that evening where Jesus is sharing these thoughts. And notice, over and over again, he makes a deal out of our happiness. John 15, verse 11, he says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. A little bit later in the evening, John 16, verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. A little bit later in the evening, John 17, verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that you may have my joy fulfilled." in themselves. Jesus wanted them to experience rejoicing and joy in life. Matter of fact, he used that word joy and rejoicing seven times in the last evening that he was together with them. This matters to him. This is a big deal to Jesus. But something was going to need to happen for this kind of happiness to get realized. This wasn't happiness that you might stumble into. This wasn't even happiness that was available to anybody and everybody. When Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Some of us have heard that verse. But the verse right after, it's pretty important. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All right, now, this, this is what's involved in Jesus' happiness. we're, We're traveling through time with Jesus. He's getting towards the end of his life here. And does he want you to be happy? Yes, he wants you to be happy. But there's an event that is about to take place. There's an event that must take place. There is an event that is central to everything Jesus was about. And it is him going to a cross, dying, and not staying in the ground, but overcoming death and being resurrected from the grave on Sunday morning. It's what we're here talking about. Easter is a celebration of what Jesus Christ did, and it's got everything to do with you ever being happy. The Son of God wants a smile on your face. He wants you to rejoice. He wants you to be able to stare at life And when it stares back at you with all of its difficulty, and all of its trials, and all of its brokenness, he wants you to be able to look at it with something greater than life and smile back at it, being able to say, because he said, nothing can take your joy from you, nothing. See, the kind of joy, the kind of happiness, the kind of fulfillment that God is interested in us experiencing requires the event that we're celebrating this morning got to have it. I think I wrote this in your outline. If your ideas about happiness don't have any connection to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, then your view of happiness is not God's view. If you can be happy in your life without the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, then whatever it is that you're interested in, it's not what God had in mind for you. It's not the happiness that the creator of the world put in place for you. There's, there is an achievable, attainable, realizable, joy, rejoicing, fulfillment, and happiness that God had in mind for your life. That this morning, if you're here celebrating a form of happiness, wherever it came from, finally graduated, inherited some money that weren't expecting, things are going well between you and another person, uh, you're in a great season of health, I mean, whatever it is, but you're here this morning and the resurrection didn't need to take place for you to have that happiness, well then whatever happiness you have, it's not the happiness that God was talking about for you. The happiness God had in mind required Jesus Christ to go to a cross and to be resurrected. So that kind of flies in the face of What have you chosen to do with your life? Well, I've chosen to walk this path. I've chosen this form of morality. I've chosen these ideas in life. Well, do you think God's with you in that? Well, yes, of course I think God's with me in that because God would want me to be happy. Well, God did something in order to affect you being able to be happy. It required his son to go to a cross and die a horrible death and it required God to raise him up from the dead in order for you to be happy. So happiness doesn't come in any shape and size. It is related to the event that we're here together celebrating. Now, Easter is the familiar celebration of a rare event. As a matter of fact, it's an event that makes no sense when it occurs. You know, you you know, I'm going to say historically, you got no precedent for this, except for the fact that Jesus sort of hinted at it with a guy named Lazarus. Not too many days before his own resurrection. But in history, how many resurrections are there? Right? Shakespeare said this about death. He said, it is the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. No one comes back from death. No one comes back from death. And so, this event of the resurrection on Easter morning, it catches everybody by surprise. Good guys and bad guys, followers of Jesus who have been with him for three years. They're, they're just, they don't have a script for this. It's not like they've seen a dozen other people or even heard of a dozen other people who've ever come back from the dead. Once you cross into that domain, the powers that put you there and the powers that hold you there are irreversible. They cannot be overcome. So Easter morning is a strange, strange anomaly. But they reveal something about God and who God is. Right? The resurrection represents an act of God, that is no category for comparison. It, it is a miracle. It is what trumps normal life, right? You, and you guys play cards. People don't play cards anymore, right? Years ago, I played cards. They're just bored. They played cards. If you played cards, you know what a trump card is, right? You know, there's just one card that's been designated as the superior card to every other card. You know, it's you know, if you're a bad if you're a bad card player, you know, the hand gets dealt and you pick your cards up and, and you've got the trump card. You kind of just try to act like you don't, you know. Because basically right now you know that you're living in card security, you know. You have this invincibility about you. You know that no matter what anybody else has in their hand, no matter what they bring against you, <laughs> you just throw that trump card down and the whole thing gets reversed, right? They, get, they, they thought they had you sunk. And you just throw the trump card down. Listen, this, that's what the resurrection is. It's, it's God playing the trump card, and he's the only one who has it. No matter what life brings, no matter what events go on. Listen, death, death's a bad dude, man, right? Death, I mean, death shows up. He's dressed in black. You can barely see his face. Everybody's scared of him. I mean, there's lots of issues that we face, you know, we, we could get beat up, we could have some health problems, we, we could have financial issues, we could, we could have difficulties in this life, but let death show up at the party. Death is a different beast, isn't he? He is a foe like no other foe, right? Adrian Warnock, in his book Raised with Christ, says, a series of advertisements on British television move me close to tears every time I see them. They begin with someone crying hugging a loved one a voice begins when I was diagnosed with cancer you appreciate immediately the terrible impact of the word cancer after a few seconds the patient says today I was told I have my life back suddenly you realize that the person is crying for joy not anguish And through their tears, a smile appears. This commercial reminds us of the power of death and of the precious nature of life. The thread by which we hang on to life is so slender. See, the moment death reaches out into our world, and anybody who's here who's ever had a word like cancer hung on your life, it's as, it's as though the lights go out around you, and immediately a different perspective is on you, and, and your life sort of begins to flash before your eyes, and you consider your mortality. You consider that what you always thought would, would if it's going to happen at all, which I know it does, it happens to everybody, it's so far off in the distance that it isn't something you really even need to worry about or think about. But let somebody hang a death label on you. Let somebody interrupt the misnomer that this is just going to go on forever. And all of a sudden, you're in touch with something gruesome and powerful. Right? Well, look in, in Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. titled the message today living in the shadow of the resurrection <clears throat> unless you're a christian who has come to faith in christ you don't live in the shadow of the resurrection and and quite honestly i've known a lot of christians who don't live in the shadow of the resurrection <clears throat> they continue to live in the shadow of death and there is such a shadow I just want to kind of put us in touch with it for a moment this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And this is an interesting context here. Because a debate that everybody should still be having, and quite honestly most people are having, when the opportunity gives itself, is who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? And what's significant about him? And why are we gathered here today, 2,000 years after his life upon this earth, still talking about him? Why has he captured the attention, this one individual has captured the attention of humanity like no one else ever has? Like no one else has ever even come close to having? Why? Well, if, you, if, if, if you've read the book of Hebrews in the scriptures, Hebrews opens up with a discussion of, well, who is he? And what did he do that was so significant? And what makes him any different than anybody else who's been created or any other created being, including angels? And that's where we jump into this verse right here. But it's interesting what it has to say about death. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Right. So since you and I live as human beings in the form of flesh and blood, this passage says Jesus Christ, God himself, took on that same form for a reason, for a purpose, and it has to do with you and I ever being happy. Here's why. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong long slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Boy, if you just, I'm not going to go into that verse, but can you just chew on that verse just for a second to make it raise questions in your head? Because there is this universal idea about Jesus that you can just turn him into your helper just like that. He's just here to help you do whatever, whenever. That's just how God is. God just helping everybody Anybody and everybody, helping everybody. Did you just read that verse? Surely it is not angels he helps. There's a whole realm of created beings who thumbed their nose at God and said, hey, you know what, God, we got this. We'll do this ourselves. We will ascend and live a life that we choose to live. And God turned to that whole realm of created beings and said, yes, you will, and I will not rescue you from it and you will stand condemned forever. You understand the angels have no hope to stand on Easter morning and say something about you and I having hope. Oh, don't take that for granted. You know, somehow again, when you when you mess with God and you redefine him and you make him like yourself, you you impose upon him your own reasons and you obligate him to do what you think he should have done the same mentality that says, well, of course we would have rescued man, says, of course we would have rescued the angels, and God did not. Count yourselves blessed that this morning there is the opportunity for you to have hope beyond the sin that we've committed against God. And there is, and this is why. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Right? How many of us have no problem with God being merciful? Isn't that like the first thing we say about God? Well, God is merciful. You know, I've messed up. God is merciful. It's no problem. He'll work it out. He'll get over it. He'll look past it. Because God's merciful. That's what God is like to us. But when you read the Bible, you find out God is merciful, yes. And he has reason to be merciful. God is merciful and he has reason to be merciful. What is God's reason to be merciful toward you or me? Well, it's, it's what Jesus talked about on the Passover evening when he had his meal with his disciples. And he talked about a joy for them. And a joy that no one could take away. And he was about to go and acquire it for them by his death and his burial and his resurrection. Why is it that God would have mercy on any? Well, it's in that passage right there. It's that big word called propitiation for sins. Jesus Christ had to die. This is not an optional event, he had to die because God is merciful, but God is also just and a punisher of sin. Someone had to be punished in order for anyone to be released. That's what that word propitiation means. I know you haven't used that like at Winn-Dixie or something lately, (laughs) but propitiation means to satisfy God. Something had to be done to satisfy God so that his mode from now on toward those who have been forgiven would be mercy. There's a reason why God is merciful. It's because his son took away the punishment that we deserved. This is the good news of what we're celebrating this morning when it comes to our celebrating Easter. But let let me slip us back into this passage for a moment, back into verse 15. He came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen, when we think about death sometimes, we think about that, that epicenter event, like at some point I'm, I'm going to die, I'm going to exhaust this life, last breath, last heartbeat, and then I'm, I'm dead. And for most of us, that's not a reality, right? Some of us got enough gray and enough issues, and maybe you've had a diagnosis given to us that that. That's a little bit more of a reality. But for most of us in the room here, we don't live like that's ever going to happen. Oh, but we know in theory that, yeah, one day. It's possible that it could happen somewhere so far down the line that I've always got time to think about it. But this passage doesn't just say that death becomes a problem here at the event. This, This verse says that it is a lifelong problem. It is people who live in the shadow of death. They live in the reality that death is lurking. Death is touching and working its way into our lives. Well, how do you you know if you're in the shadow of death? Well, Well, it feels like fear. You know what shade feels like when you've been in the sun? You can feel shade, can't you? Well, the shadow of death feels like fear. It feels like you're living your life with something looming and lurking over your life. Not, and not just about this ultimate in-time event, but death shows up in life. And that's what I want to I get us to see today, that the, the resurrection is something to live in the shadow of when you're a long way from physical dying. You can be in this room today thinking, I'm not going to die for a long time. I'm young. I'm a teenager. got a lot of life ahead of me. Okay, but you still live in the shadow of death. You live in death kind of casting its shadow over your life. Right? I wrote this out in your outline. Living in the shadow of death means you are ever mindful that death can touch what is living and precious to you. Death can touch your health. It can touch friendships and marriages and parent-child connections. It can touch your business your crops, your home. Anything that has security and has value and has liveliness to you, the shadow of death stands over it, and you feel it in your life, and it threatens you. And, and you've, you've lived through some deaths in these areas, right? You've experienced that in a fallen world where death operates, things just don't continue, do they? Your health just doesn't continue, Stuff happens. Your body changes. Relationships sometimes, just, they just don't continue. They were going great. Everything was great. We were the best of friends. We drifted apart, or there was an offense, a situation. And, and where is that relationship today? It's gone. Where's, where's that marriage? You were married. You, you committed your lives to each other. You thought nothing's going to ever come between us. We had affection and care and love for one another. And this shadow overcame it. And where is it now? Well, that marriage is dead. We divorced. We split up. Right? I mean, you guys, do you see the shadow of death in your lives? You I know, mean, some of us sitting here today, perhaps you've got children that you, I mean, this breaks my heart when I look at sometimes parents and their, and their children are just so wayward, don't even talk to one another. Right? They were, they were little bitty toddlers bouncing on your knee, running up, holding their hands up, wanting to be a part of your life, and now that's dead. You can't even have a conversation with them. They don't even return a phone call. And so death isn't just about that end time event, is it? See, we live subject to the shadow of death our whole lives. Death stands on the sideline in its dark outfit, staring at the events of your life and sort of communicating to you, saying, I'm going to take that away. I'll, I'll have that when it's all over. And you just let your life get in the crosshairs of questions in these categories and you start feeling the looming presence of death. Death is going to kill that thing, isn't it? And you live in the fear of it. Charles Spurgeon, pastor from the 1800s in London, one of the largest ministries in the world at one point. He says, though the fear though though the fear of death is not needful to Christians and the grace of God has been manifested in giving Christ to deliver them from it. Yet, is it true that some of them, right, even Christians, are still subject to bondage through the wholly unnecessary fear? They not only fear death, but they fear it to such an extent that it brings them into bondage. Right? It begins to control them. Begins to control their attitude, their heart. Their abilities to live life with joy. It's not merely a dark cloud that passes over them and is soon gone, but it abides with them. They are all their lifetime subject to bondage through the fear of death. They shall not perish, neither shall any pluck them out of Christ's hands. But they have not that restful assurance of safety which Christ's sheep ought to enjoy. I'm sorry to say that I know some who profess to have been Christians for years, but what still, at times, at any rate, are in bondage through fear of death. I do not speak of this as a phenomena or an experience that is uncommon. I wish it were. But I'm obliged to say that there are very many whom one must judge to be children of God who are frequently, if not always, in a state of despondency, doubt, and dread through this fear of death, which seems to rest upon them like a pall. Right? I mean, you, this, this could be describing any any of us. Though, that we have this incredible... This is Easter morning. We have something to celebrate. But coming in here today, we weren't celebrating. Was not, I was not an individual celebrating. I was not an individual with great joy and exceeding awareness. I, I was living... A weighty life, a concerned life. I'm, I'm living like a deer drinking from the edge of a pond, you know, constantly picking its face up. It almost never has a moment where it can just relax, will you? Hey, well, it can't relax because it, it just feels like the wheels are going to come off at any moment. My life is going to go wrong at any moment. Well, that, listen, you're more in touch with the shadow of death than you are the shadow of the resurrection. Many of these persons have been so long in this sad state that they almost come to believe that it is impossible for them to escape from it. There's such a thing as sitting so long on the cold stone of despair that you and the stone almost seem to be one. There's such a thing as wearing the yoke of despondency until that yoke and your shoulders become so closely united that you cannot take it off. Just as valor fights till its sword grows to its hand, so despair burdens you till it grows into your spirit. I mean, it sort of becomes your demeanor. It's like you, you walk in, you know, the little little gray cloud comes in with some people, you know what I'm talking about? That, that's how this has happened in someone's spirit. I would not roughly tear it out, but if I might kindly perform an act of spiritual surgery, I should be glad to be made the instrument through which the Master would perform his blessed work of delivering those who are in bondage through fear of death. Listen, what incredible news sits in the room with us today. What Jesus Christ did in the resurrection is the means of being delivered from this shadow of death that sits upon our lives. And there's the ultimate shadow of that event one day will touch your life it will end things as you know it. But the shadow of death is not this. It is the imminent presence of that which kills and takes away and steals and destroys. The thing against which Jesus said, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Death wants to take your life from you and it lets you know on a daily basis it can and it will. But I want to look at living life in the shadow of the resurrection. What does it mean to be mindful of the resurrection? So we can go from happy Easter to happy because of Easter. I'm happy because of Easter. In your outline there, it says the resurrection is an event, right? It took place in April of A.D. 33, so there's a moment in time where this resurrection event occurs, but it is also a revelation of a principle that is alive in God. Jesus Christ said of himself, I am the resurrection. It's a a weird little thing that when you take the resurrection and you dislocate it from the person of God who says, I am the resurrection. I am that thing. I am that influence. I am that power. It is bound up in a person. If you stick it on a calendar, it becomes impersonal. It it becomes something you can stare at from a distance. You don't feel about it the same way. Do you remember John chapter 11? We get a lesson in how to encounter the resurrection in John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. The friend of Jesus is dead. Mary and Martha, they've cried out to Jesus when he was alive on his deathbed that he might come and do something to rescue him but now it's too late because death has shown up. Before, when he was alive, even Jesus could do something about him then, but not now, not now. The ultimate foe has spoken. He has traveled into a place from which no man returns. It's too, nothing can be done. John 11, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, Right? Isn't she overlooking something a little bit obvious? He is here. But see, it's too late. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? Calendar event, something in the future, way, way down the line. Jesus, thank you for reminding me about that thing that's so far away that if I get my binoculars out somewhere in the, in the plan of God, there's this day where the dead are resurrected. Somewhere, that could be a reality for me. Jesus stands and says, no, 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 Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Wherever I am is where resurrection is. So what God makes a statement about himself, he picks on the ultimate foe. Death is the ultimate foe. It controls everything. And yet Jesus stands in the presence of death and says, but I am the resurrection. I am outside that. I am over that. I am greater than that. Pick your greatest foe. I am greater than your greatest foe. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not subject to to gravitational forces. I'm not subject to time and space. I'm not subject to a heartbeat. Lazarus doesn't need a heartbeat for me to do something for him. I'm not subject to health. I'm not subject to the principles that that keep you alive, that flow inside your body. I'm not subject to economic principles. I, I can do resurrection miracles in the midst of anything that's dead. Give me a dead condition in any category of your life. I am the resurrection. So there's a hope in your midst as long as Christ is in your midst. Martha, it's not just an end event. And the resurrection today is not just an event that you've kind of got tucked away in some box like an insurance policy. That I, I, I hope one day... You know, and I I really believe this. I'm a Christian. I really believe this, that that when I die, I'm going to be resurrected to be with God. Good. Ultimately, ultimately, in light of eternity, most important thing you could say about your life. But you're living today. Most of you, I almost could almost guarantee 100% of everybody here today will not die today. Not that way. But you will live in the shadow of Death. Today. And the shadow will reach into your life and will threaten to kill the things that are alive in your life and the things that are precious to you. And you will live in that. And the resurrection informs how you will respond to that. And look in Romans chapter four with me. I'll look at a few examples. I'm going to do these quickly. So if you can turn quickly. Abraham, I want to transfer this news of Easter morning out of the category of, well, one day I'll need that. This morning, if, if, you're, if you're a teenager or a college student, you need to be living today conscious of the resurrection. If you're a middle-aged single person in the room today, and you haven't been thinking about, hey, physically I'm doing fine, you need to be living conscious today of the resurrection, conscious of it as you go to live your life. Right? These folks that we're going to visit with in a moment here, they lived their life conscious of the resurrection, not because they were about to die, but because they had to live in the shadow of death. And it was the resurrection and their mindfulness of it that rescued them from that shadow. Right? Abraham chapter 4 <clears throat> Remember, Abraham is a man who's received an incredible promise from God. you remember this promise. God has said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you with children. God promises in that kind of late in the game anyway. He's about 75 years old when God promises Abraham this. But then 25 years later, that promise is getting old, and it still hasn't been fulfilled. Now, how do you feel about that promise? You're about a hundred years old now with a promise of having children. I mean, I got two struggles with that. One, could it ever happen? Two, could I keep track of them? You know, when I have kids, I'm a hundred, man. I don't even know if i pay attention to them. It's dangerous. My wife is 75, you know, she's, she's kind of up there too. All right, so you got some issues with this promise goes on and on and on If you will, there's a sense of death that looms over the promise. Look in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead. What did he believe about God? He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. As good as dead. Was Abraham dead? No, but he was living in the shadow of death. Death had said, your childbearing years are over. And not only was his body as good as dead. I lost my place. What verse was I in? Thank you. His body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Barrenness. At one point... And this is a precious thing to a woman. The ability to have children is a precious thing. It is a life thing for a woman. And she has become barren. Sarah Sarah is not physically dead yet, but there's a part of her life that is. Death has shown up in a significant category and said, it's over, Sarah. Physically, it's over for you. That's dead in you now. Abraham, you're so old, your body is as good as dead in this category. It's come and it's gone. It's over, man. The season for that to happen in your life is over. This is now an impossible situation. All the natural forces are decrying, you're done. This can't happen in your life anymore. Do you understand? It's like, this, is, this is not ultimate death, but it's the shadow of death. It's a promise. It's a meaningful, important promise in this man's life. This is a society that's built on perpetuating your family name. It is accumulating wealth, resources, sheep and crops and land. But if you accumulate, you got no one to pass it to, right? This is Abraham's great concern. you remember all the troubling conversations he's having with God? But God, who will be my heir? What is that? It's fear. God, I'm afraid. I've got no one to inherit what's in my life. God, how does this get remedied? This is a man standing in the shadow of death with his wife who's desperately watching her own life die in a category. What rescues this man in this hour? Let's keep reading. Verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Why was he fully convinced of that? Well, who is this God? We'll go back up into verse 17. God who gives life to the dead. Fully convinced of this God who gives life to the dead. God, my life is as good as dead in this category. And The only thing I've got going for me is that you are the God who gives life to the dead. You are a resurrection God. You are a God who stares death right in the face and overthrows death. Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him we're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. This is about believing in a God of resurrection. That's what Abraham believed. In his life, he believed that. Right. Remember Hebrews chapter 11. There was a day in which a, a very difficult moment of obedience comes into Abraham's life. God has stepped in, taken this man whose body was dead and given life to it, and taken this woman whose womb was dead and given life to it, and they have produced a son named Isaac. And God turns around now and says, offer Isaac to me in obedience. Wait, wait. You, you want me to give up what I have based my entire walk with you on? That you would, you would bless me? And fulfill the promises that you made to him. You, you, you want me to bring that to an end? You, you want that to become dead, God? Except Abraham doesn't waver in his faith. Why? Well, Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And verse 19 says, Because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham, how did you take a step into an impossible situation? Abraham, if you obey God, this situation becomes impossible. If you take your only son, who is the inheritance of your life, and you kill him, and he is no more, you have now created an impossible situation. And he does it anyway. Why? Because he believed that God could even raise him from the dead. He believed in a God of resurrection. He believed that in the most finished, unalterable, impossible situation, God would still be God in it. I am the resurrection. There is no situation that I can't stand in and prevail over. Abraham believed that and therefore he obeyed God. Listen, some of us are hesitating to obey God. Because we think our obedience will create a situation that there's no remedy to. I'm about to put some of y'all in a really strange pickle here. Well, there's probably multiple categories I could give examples from, but let's let's just keep it in this category. Guys sometimes, married men sometimes do things that creates a level of dishonesty between them and their wives. Disclosing it and living in honesty and integrity becomes an action of great difficulty. Great difficulty. Because they believe it will create an impossible situation. They're fully convinced that if I come clean... Maybe you're a teenager here and you've got, an old, you've got a category where if you come clean, the response is going to create an impossible situation for me. So therefore, I don't do it. What made Abraham do that? Because he, he believed in the God who overcomes the impossible. If you create death, the God of resurrection has no problem overcoming it. So sometimes, aren't there issues in your life like this? Sometimes you, you get to the point in the month where you, know, you want to give financially. You want to you give to the kingdom of God. You want to do what God's called you to do and tithe. But if you do, it's going to create an impossible scenario for you. All right? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Well, that's not possible. It is for God. God raises from the dead. Listen, you can't be scared of the shadow of death because you believe in a God who raises from the dead, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because I am the resurrection is with me. That's why I'm not going to be afraid. Every once in a while, I, I have a counseling moment with somebody that, that taking a step in agreement with God is going to put them in a, 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 what feels like a dangerous, threatening, uncomfortable situation for them. And they're feeling like God has really called me to do this, but they just don't feel that they can do it. So what they want by way of counsel is they, they want you to help them talk themselves out of it. Help me. Let me give you all the reasons why this can't work this way. <clears throat> and somebody who's been through pain and difficulty and disappointment and heartache, has got a resume of struggling and sorrow, <clears throat> it's very hard to take them and say, how about a little bit more of that? <clears throat> the hope is that, well, well, if I'm obedient to God, well, then that won't happen, right? I mean, if I obey God and I trust God, well, then the circumstances won't get worse, Right? That's a tough question because you want to help them to do what's in faith and what's right in many times. And this is how I've had to answer. I said, you know, I, I, I cannot guarantee you that. God could lead you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I've used Paul's example, this great calling of God upon Paul's life. God appears to him, why are you persecuting me? God reveals to him, "I've appointed you as a witness, and I'm sending you to a people, and I'm going to deliver you from them." If I'm Paul, I'm kind of—I I don't want to read past the fine print too fast. You've called me; that's great. Uh, you've revealed yourself to me; that's great. You've appointed me; cool. I've got an appointment; that's awesome. God's got a purpose for me. I'm sending you to a people; awesome. That I'm going to have to deliver you from. You're sending me to people that you're going to have to rescue me from? Is that what you just said? (laughs) Yes, it's exactly what I just said. What if they kill me? I can raise you from the dead. Go ahead and go. See, sometimes our belief is not in a God of resurrection. We don't live in the shadow of the resurrection. So when something looks beyond us, something looks like it's impossible, we just don't, we stay away from doing it. Because we think it's impossible, but yet God says, you can step into the impossible. Dude, if they kill you, I can raise you from the dead. I am the resurrection. Okay, God, I can do that then. And that's what Abraham does. Let me just give you a couple more quick examples here. David is a man who faced a very difficult situation. Second Samuel chapter 12 He faces what no parent ever wants to face. The death of a child. The struggle to watch the deterioration of health and the actual death of the child greeted with fasting and prayer and tears. And and when that comes to a close here in verse 19, watch, watch what happens. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. It's like, David, how did you turn a corner here? You look like a man destroyed, and now you look like you can go on. What happened? He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He will not return to me. Where's David's comfort in this moment? In the God of resurrection. That one day I will put off this body and God will resurrect me and I will go and I will be with my son once again. See, you know, if you're a parent and, and you have wrestled through the loss of a child like this, uh, you, you, you need an eternal view. You need a resurrected view of who God is in the midst of such a loss. See, for the person whose hope is in Easter morning, in the resurrecting God, death doesn't have the final say. See, death didn't have the final say for David. He knew something beyond death, right? That's what living in the shadow of the resurrection does for us. Remember the season of Job's life, a long season of suffering and loss, event after event after event, personal loss, family loss, economic loss, and loss of health over a long period of time. How how does he maintain any view of hopefulness about his life? Job chapter 19 <clears throat> verse 25 Job says for I know that my redeemer hold on to that word my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed right after my natural life after my flesh is dead. Yet, in, and actually some translations say, apart from my flesh, I shall see God. So Job, there's life beyond this event, isn't there? Yes, there is. There's life beyond this life. Yes, there is. For I know my Redeemer lives. And even after this body is put off and it's dead, I know I'm, st- I'm going to see God. There's more. The story is not over. My life is not contained in this season that feels like everything is dying. This man is living in the shadow of death. But what he imports into that moment is a view of a redeemer. Now that's a a very interesting word if you've ever studied it much in the Old Testament. Theologically, this word is used to convey God's redemption of individuals from spiritual death. It's a resurrection word. And what's really interesting, if if you back it up into... Moses' writing in the first five books. It's used in the Pentateuchal legislation, listen, to refer to the repurchase of a field that was sold in time of need or the freeing of an Israelite slave who sold himself in time of poverty. That's interesting. Most of the time when you read about slavery in the Old Testament, it doesn't look like slavery in what we've understood here in the Western world. Slavery in the Old Testament primarily is about an individual who, through a series of events, perhaps bad decisions on his own part, ran himself aground and got himself into so much debt that the only thing he could do was present himself to his debtors as a slave. So he went from being a free man, living his life, doing his thing, to now he has, he has surrendered his life over to another person in order to pay a debt. He's living in the regret of a decision and this poverty of being enslaved to someone else to do his bidding and his will, regrettably, because of his situation. But a a redeemer steps into that and buys him back. That's what a redeemer does. So a redeemer could come into that bondage situation and purchase this man's life out from underneath that. See, Job says, that's me. I am under a season that's controlling, it's horrible, it's lost, but I know that my Redeemer lives. I believe in a God who is a resurrecting God. He steps into these dead situations, and he redeems us out of it. One last example. The nation of Israel. This nation lived in the shadow of of despondent spiritual death. That's the condition that they were in. A group of people could be like ourselves, living in an age in which there's just a, a pallor of death upon the church, upon people spiritually. It's not a vibrancy and a passion and a love and a zeal for God that consumes them. There's compromise. There's willingness to engage the world at a heightened level, shopping for something that will satisfy people's souls. And Ezekiel looks out on the people of God. And that's the condition that he sees in this passage. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, dead things. And he led me around among them, and behold, There were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry, right? This is not just dead. This is very dead. I don't know if there's grades of dead, but this is very dead. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Do they have the ability to live? You remember, he wisely answers, you know God, that's a good, if God ever asks you questions, that's probably the best answer to give, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Later in verse 11, he says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. That's, that's the language of the shadow of death, isn't it? I've got no hope. This can't change. Can these bones live? Well, no. It's impossible. The dead can't bring themselves back to life. Spiritually, the condition is so bad here that there is no hope. Therefore, Ezekiel prophesied and said to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up here. This is the God of resurrection. This is a God who looks upon death and the shadow of death and injects himself into these situations. Well, you know, We live our lives, and, and I hope you're in touch with this right now, of how you've been living your life this week in the shadow of death, aware of death's lurking presence, threatening, menacing, reaching in to touch your life. But it's Easter morning, and as Peter said earlier, Every morning's Easter morning for a Christian. We live in the resurrection. Martha, don't just be sitting there waiting that one day on a calendar that something could happen one day, Jesus, one day something could happen, sure. Martha, I am the resurrection. Every day around me is Resurrection Sunday. Everything that's impossible, everything that's dead in your life, I'm greater than it. Right in your outline, I wrote this. Living in the shadow of death, remember, means you are ever mindful that death can touch what is living and precious to you. Death can touch your health. It can touch friendships and marriages and parent-child connections. It, It can touch your business, your crops, your home, your spiritual passion, your vitality with God. But living in the shadow of the resurrection means you are ever mindful of God intruding and reversing death's work and giving you a living future. That's what it means to have the Son of God stand in your face and say, I am the resurrection. Or if you're kind of new to us here, you, this is not the moment where you reach for your keys. It's the moment in the service where you you reach for the personal work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You've listened to a bunch of things said and God uses preaching to stir our hearts. But the God who knows the hairs on your head, he he knows what shadow you're living in. He knows what the shadow of death feels like for you right now. now. I may not have mentioned anything about you in particular but right now the Holy Spirit is in this room with us where two or more of you gathered together I'm there in your midst it's why, one of the reasons why we gather is because there's a unique presence of God in this place that you don't get in your own personal prayer closet and there's uniqueness there but there's uniqueness here so God uniquely right now wants to, to deal in the shadow of death in your life so can you invite him to do that let's, let's stand up together don't disengage. This is where you kind of turn your attention away from you can stop looking at me, you can stop, you can close your eyes, you can just make this you and God. I believe God wants to, to minister to folks who are, as Charles Spurgeon mentioned, become despondent, despairing. They're Christians. You are here in this room today. You believe, trusted Christ. But there's a there's a cloud that follows your life. There is a heaviness, a weightiness, a lack of joy in your life. There is a despondency. There is a heavy sense of despair and concern that more characterizes your life than it should. I want to get to you in just a moment. But I want to overlook something here. I'm talking about the shadow of death. Can I just make all of us aware of ultimate death? the resurrection is very much about ultimate death. Not just fear of the days of this life and the things that you can lose here, but the fear of ultimate death. Let me just say, if you're here this morning and the cross and the resurrection is not at the center of your happiness, The thing that that provides happiness into your existence is not about the cross and the resurrection. It's it's something else. Matter of fact, you've you've lived fine in this life. And and the cross and the resurrection, not a major thought. Can Can I tell you, if you're afraid of death, you should be. You should be terrified of the moment that your body drops dead and in the next moment you stand before God and you stare face to face with the God who had to be satisfied for anyone who had ever broken his law. And you're here this morning and your satisfaction is not going to be found in Christ. It's going to be God demanding judgment of your life, do you ever think about the fact that you will have to render account of your life? You will stand before God and he will show you his rightness and you will see your wrongness. And in that moment, if you've not trusted Christ, if this event of Easter morning is not the determining thing about your life, You will enter into a horrible judgment with God. If you're not certain that you have escaped that judgment by putting your faith in Christ, well, then you should be terrified this morning. I can't rescue you from that fear. Only faith in Christ can rescue you from that fear. And you can do that this morning. You can right now put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on your behalf and going to the cross. That resurrection that we celebrate, it's God making an announcement to everybody that what my son just did, I accept. That's what the resurrection is. If Jesus died and stayed in the ground and no one knew anything further about his life, then we have no idea what became of his death. But the fact that he overcame death by coming back from the dead, God did that to tell you and I what he just did on the cross on your behalf, I have accepted. And I have approved of. Well, this morning, you can receive what Christ did on your behalf. Put your faith in Christ. Turn to him right now. Talk to him. Tell him, Lord, I, I want to turn away from my own life my own way. On Easter morning 2014, I'm going to put my hope in Jesus Christ. So that on that day of ultimate death, I'm going to stand before God as a forgiven child of God. Not as one who has to pay for his sins, but one whose sins have been forgiven. Listen, if you're here this morning, and I want to pray for a couple of folks, I just had a couple of impressions to pray. You've trusted in God, but there are situations in your life that, that are as good as dead. They feel impossible. Can you just let God talk to you right now? You're paying too much attention to me bunch of you guys, you need to be listening for God right now. What situation in your life feels to you like it's as good as dead? It's as good as dead. You've given up on it. You see no means of fixing it or remedying it. It's, it's too big. It's too late. If something had been done earlier, maybe, but it's, it's too late. Now, this is an impossible situation now. I believe this morning there's a, a married couple here. That your marriage feels dead. It feels as good as dead. And and I just have the sense that both of you agree about that. It feels as good as dead. I believe this morning God is trying to direct your attention away from the shadow of death to the shadow of the resurrection. For you to gaze upon the God who raises from the dead, the God who spoke to Abraham in a condition where his body was as good as dead, your marriage is as good as dead, but God, but God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that were not. Can you look upon that God today? You cannot look upon that God on Easter morning in all of his resurrection glory and still continue to believe that your marriage is dead. God raises things from the dead. I had a sense to pray for a single person here this morning that you, you are later in your life, you were sure, at some point, the Lord had spoken to you about marriage. But you, perhaps like Abraham, are many years later and that has become a faded idea in your life. And I, I believe God would provoke the risk in you to believe something of him. That this God is a God of resurrection. That which is felt dead and impossible, God, God of resurrection has in his hands. Perhaps here this, you're here this morning. You're, you're like the, the person who walked through a season of, of selling your life into slavery. You are, you are that person who got in a bind, I got in a bad situation. Life was overwhelming. The only thing I could do was to sell my life. And you made decisions in that season S- decisions of great regret. You look back on your life with great regret. I believe this morning, on Easter morning, God wants to tell you that your Redeemer lives. Your Redeemer lives. And He steps back into your regret. He steps back into decisions that you made. He steps back into seasons where this death wrapped itself around your life. And He says, I am the resurrection, I am your Redeemer. Stepping into your world to set you free from it. I'm going to buy you out of this situation. And I'm going to establish a new day in your life. Oh, this morning, God, would you liberate us this morning? God, Abraham saw something about you. Lord, help us. It's Easter morning. You are back from the dead. That great foe, that dark, menacing character stands on the edge of our lives and says, I'm going to take that. I'm going to destroy that. I'm going to ruin that. That's impossible. It'll never come to pass. And the God of resurrection stands over our lives and says something different. He says, I am the resurrection, Martha. I'm alive. And I'm here to give you life. So Lord, would you help us this morning to transfer our, our thoughts, our beliefs, Lord, from the shadow of death to the shadow of the resurrection. Lord, would you give us every day of our lives the grace To live in the shadow of the resurrection, God.
1: I no longer fear the grave. Christ has come. Took the sting of death away. With saving blood. Though my body fails and my flesh grows weak, till my final breath to this hope I'll cling. Jesus lives and so shall I. I'll be raised from the dust. Jesus lives, no more to die. Death nor any power of hell can separate me from the love, the love of my Savior. And when He returns With Him I'll rise Jesus lives No dust shall I Live from the dust With Christ on high Jesus lives No more to die And when He returns him I'll rise. purchased for us the power of that life that we get to now walk in Lord we we trust in you to bring life where there is death, where we see death in our marriages in our relationships Lord we want the power and life of Jesus Christ and the, the resurrection to speak into those things Lord and give us hope Thank you for this word this morning. Lord, let it sink into our hearts and change us. Give us hope to trust in you, our Savior. We love you, Lord. We love your Son. We love the Gospel. We love the Spirit that now resides inside us. Lord, may we walk out this place live in the light of that gospel. Live in light of that power this week, we pray. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter, guys.